Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. All right, so this morning we are doing our passage, uh, Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. I'll read the passage. And I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond with thanks be to God. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields that Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's land. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. She kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and could, should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is ex- exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and where there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Naomi, Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and the Ruth, and Ruth the Maobite, and her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, thank you so much. That was uh, your trooper. You, that was a lot of verses to get through. So I appreciate it. I know that was so much. But uh, so, good morning, morning. everybody. How are you doing? This is a beautiful day, isn't it? Man, what a wonderful day God has given us. It is uh, just one step closer to fall. So that's that's what I'm happy about. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. You see that, Jason? You're outnumbered. I heard. I heard you don't like fall. All right. Well... Uh, We are entering into the second part of our series on the book of Ruth. And as we said last week, the the book of Ruth uh, is a a short story. 
Uh, it's a, it's a it's kind of a, a sweet little short story that is found within the Old Testament. Uh, but above all else, this short story was meant to be a picture of the gospel depicted to us through the unfolding events of one particular family. And last week we went over verses 1 through 5. And we see that this family lived during the time of the Judges. The time of the Judges, a period of Israel's history that stretched between their entry into the Promised Land all the way to the coronation of their first king, Saul. And this period was kind of lasted roughly about 400 years. And it was a time of moral relativity. Uh, Judges 21-25 really summarized it well by saying that it was a time when there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And as we explored the opening five verses of this book last week, we saw that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi and the father of Kilian and Malon, uh, took his family out of Bethlehem, out of the promised land, away from the people of God during a period of judgment to find respite from the famine. And again, we talked about how to the world's eyes and maybe to even uh, Elimelech, that seemed like the right thing to do. But it, in fact, it, it, it wasn't. He was, he was running away from the judgment of God. He was running away from what he should have done, staying with the covenant of people and responding to this famine with repentance and faith. But that's not what we see. But then verses 4 through 5 end with some compounding miseries for Naomi. Seemingly a short time after arriving in the land of Moab, her husband Elimelech dies. And though her sons married Moabite women, which there was no really outright Jewish laws against, unlike the Canaanites, after 10 years of living in Moab, both of her sons die. And as you can imagine, Naomi is, is feeling kind of the, just the, the weight of all of this as we enter into the rest of chapter 1. The misery of having to leave her homeland due to a famine, the loss of her husband, and now the loss of her two sons. All of this is kind of just stacked and stacked upon the heart of Naomi. And bitterness, as we're going to see soon, has, has started to, to set in, to really take root in her heart. And that is where we're going to pick up the story this morning. But before we dive in, let us first pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful and beautiful day that you've given us. What a privilege it is to be able to come here with our brothers and sisters in Christ, God, and worship you. And Lord, dig into this, this wonderful word that you've given us. And so Lord, I pray, God, that you help us fight against all of the various things that, that this world and in our own minds are trying to, uh, to use to, to pull our attention away from you this morning. There, there are a million and a half things on our to-do list that, that are trying to kind of creep in and pull us away from, from the most important thing, from, from you. And so God, I pray that you just help us really key in here. Lord, and I pray that you guide us in our time together this morning. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Ruth chapter 1, if you haven't done that already. And we're going to be going through the rest of this chapter this morning. But for now, let's take a look at just verses 6 through 7. Verses 6 through 7. 
It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. All right, so Naomi is with her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And she gets word as she is working in the fields that the Lord has finally relented on His judgment of Israel and the famine that, that struck Bethlehem was, was finally, finally over. Now remember, this famine happened, this famine that happened was, was due to Israel turning their back on God, following after other idols. And so the Lord mercifully sent this famine so that they could recognize their sin and turn back to Him in repentance and faith. That was the purpose of the famine. And so it seems like this, this finally happened, that, that Israel finally repented of their sin and, they, and the Lord relented of this judgment that He had put onto them. And so for Naomi whose sons have all died, whose, whose husband had died. There's, there's really nothing left in Moab that's, that's keeping her there. There's nothing that's, that's keeping her in Moab. And it seems to her that the best course of action is to return to her homeland, to her people. And so Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah start to head in that direction. But as they were walking, Naomi stops. She kind of just stops dead in her tracks and she turns to her two daughters-in-law and says in the beginning of verse 8, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Now what's really interesting here is that Naomi pronounces this blessing onto them, to Orpah and to Ruth. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you, and the Lord grant that you may find rest. So she's pronouncing this blessing. And this is an important point that I want you to keep in the back of your minds. Because Naomi right now believes that the Lord has the ability to deal with Ruth and Orpah kindly. That He will be good to them. Now this will contrast in the way in which Naomi believes the Lord deals with her personally a little later on. So just, just keep that in the back of your minds. She right now believes that, that the Lord can deal kindly and, and good to Orpah and Ruth, but that's going to look different in terms of how she believes the Lord deals with her personally. So Naomi pronounces this blessing onto Ruth and Orpah, but then she, and, and she tries to convince them to go back to their own home. She tries to get them to, to turn around and, and stop following her so that they may find rest. And what is so beautiful here is that you truly see Naomi's love for her two daughters-in-law. And not only that, but you also see their love for her. There's this, this, mutual, this, this mutual love, this, this deep bond that they shared. So their first reaction to Naomi telling them to leave was to lift up their voices and, and weep and say to her, No! No, we're not going to do that. We, we will return to, to you or with you and your people. I mean, they, were, they were just absolutely devastated at even the, the prospect, even the thought of possibly leaving Naomi and going back home. 
But then Naomi, out of love, tries to tell them the reality of the situation, what it would really mean for them to follow her back to Israel. And so she says to them in verses 11 through 13, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, or if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So you see, being a widow in this time was a very difficult situation to be in. In the perfect world, however, Israel should have been a safe place for for three widows. Right? The, the law of God speaks of how widows are, are, are in need to be cared for in the time of... But Sorry, let me back up a little bit. The, the law of God speaks to how widows are to be greatly cared for uh, by Israel. They're, they're to be treated with, with love and respect and, and dignity. That's how they should be treated. But again, we have to remember that this is the time of judges. This is, this is far away from, from the perfect situation and the people of God following the law of God perfectly. This is the, the time period where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so going out of their way to help, help a, a few widows, well, that doesn't really you know, seem like it's going to you know, benefit them very much. So, so why would they go out of their way to, to help anybody, to help these widows? And so this means that the socioeconomic difficulties facing these widows were numerous. They were numerous. And you see in these three verses that Naomi's desire for Ruth and Orpah is to be remarried and to have children because there's a certain security in that that was not typically afforded to widows during this time. And so she says to to go back have rest there. Get remarried. Have children. Have that security because you're not going to have that with me if you follow me. And this is why she says, I don't have any sons in my womb. Right? I don't have any sons in my womb that could be your husband sometime later in the future. Not only that, but I'm, I'm, I'm too old to find a husband myself and bear sons. And even if that did happen, what are you going to do? You're just going to just wait around and, and not get, get married or anything like that until you're old enough to, to marry the sons that I, that I might have sometime in the future? No. That's ridiculous. And here's where we really begin to see that contrast of Naomi recognizing that while the Lord can still do good to others, she believes that that is not the case with her. And she ends verse 13 by saying, No, my daughters. And again, really hear the love that she has for them. She calls them my daughters. For this is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So do you you see what she's really saying here? Because of all of these compounding miseries that have happened in her life, Naomi is convinced that the hand of the Lord, which is a phrase that essentially means God's divine action, has gone out against her. She believes God's hand is against her. The Lord is no longer blessing Naomi. In fact, He is purposefully cursing her. So she believes. 
And it's Naomi's belief that if her daughters-in-law follow her, they will be caught up in sort of this, this collateral damage of the Lord moving against her. And because of this, Naomi again implores them to return to their home, homes in, in Moab. And in verse 14, they for a second time lift their voices and weep. But then something interesting happens. And while Orpah gives Naomi a farewell kiss and leaves back to her homeland, probably hearing the wisdom and what Naomi was saying, what does Ruth do? Yeah, Ruth clings to Naomi. She clings to her. Despite the grim prospects that await her in Judah, in Israel, in Bethlehem, Ruth makes a remarkably selfless decision to stay with her mother-in-law. Now Naomi can't believe what is happening and even attempts to tell her to go back with her sister in verse 15. But listen to this beautiful response of Ruth in verses 16 through 17. This is what, this is what Ruth tells Naomi when Naomi tries again to get Ruth to depart from her. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. <coughs> Friends, as one commentator says, this clinging of Ruth typifies the unyielding devotion of a covenant relationship. The unyielding devotion of a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship like, like marriage or primarily like God's covenantal relationship to His people. In clinging to Ruth in this, this loyal love, or, or Naomi rather, Ruth embodies the essence of God's law laid out by Paul in Romans 13, 8-10, which says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not, shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so what is so beautiful here is that Ruth is typifying or acting as a picture of the church. Right? So when you see Ruth, think the church. And, it, and she is doing this in, in two different ways. She is, she is being the church in two different ways. As we see from Paul in Romans 13, she is exhibiting the love that we are to have for one another. Right? And what is so wonderful here is that Ruth is not loving Naomi when it is convenient for her. But rather, she is showing her love even when it comes at great personal cost to herself. That is covenant love. That is the kind of love that the church, that, that we in this room, if you're a believer in Christ, that's the, that's the kind of love that we are called to have for one another. We are the body of Christ. We are His bride. And we should love one another as such. Right? Though Ruth was a Moabite, not even from the people of Israel, she shared a covenant bond, a covenant love with Naomi that was far thicker than blood. 
And again, this is like us in this room. I believe I said it a while ago and in some other sermon, but friends, if you are a believer in Christ, did you know that you have brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world that you share a deeper bond with, a deeper connection with, than even your closest family members who are not believers? Did you know that? And the selfless love of Ruth, yet again, is to be a model for us. That is how we ought to love one another. But again, not only that, but she is also typifying the love that the church ultimately should have for Jesus. Right? Just look at the devotion of Ruth for Naomi and you'll, and you'll, and you'll see it. Where Naomi settles, Ruth will settle. I mean, whoever, whoever Naomi's God is, that will be Ruth's God. Wherever Naomi dies and is buried, that will be where Ruth will die and will be buried. And notice how at the end of verse 17 that the culmination of Ruth's declaration of devotion does not end with images of prosperity. Images of, of her like saying that Ruth or uh, Naomi, if you, if you uh, get a lot of money, I'm going to get a lot of money. If you're going to get this grand house, I'm going to get this grand house. If you have this wonderful family, I'm going to have this wonderful family. That's not how she words it at all. It does not end with images of prosperity, but images of death. She says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so friends, do you see the parallels of the love Christians are to have for Christ here? When you become a, a disciple of Christ, you're not, you're not signing up for a lifetime of ease. Not in the slightest. And your love for Him is not to be provisional. It's not to be provisional, dependent upon your life's circumstances. Often Jesus will call you to, to foreign lands, like Vermont, <laughs> to new jobs, to go places that in the eyes of the world makes no sense for you to go. And for some, it may even mean going to lands that are hostile to the gospel. And I don't mean like North American hostile. I don't mean that at all. I mean Middle Eastern type of hostile. It may mean saying difficult things to people. Calling sin, sin. Heaven forbid may mean actually preaching the gospel message to people. That might land you in hot water with your employer or your family members or whoever you may be around. Friends, following Jesus may come at great personal cost to you. But our covenant love for Him should be that we so desire to cling to Him, that we find Him so worthy, so lovely, that we say to Him, Lord, where you go, I will go. The people you want me to love, Lord, I will love them. Now I'll follow you even if it leads me to the very doorstep of death. And this is the type of love that Ruth has for Naomi. And it typifies that very same love that we are to have for Christ. Because, friends, that was and is His love for us. Right? We were His enemies. We hated Him. In our hearts. We love the world rather than Him. And He came here to this, this foreign, broken world 
and died for us. And if I may use Paul as another example, he shows us this this Ruth-like love for Jesus. His love and devotion for Jesus led him to to many foreign lands, right? And it led him to to many difficulties and and sufferings, and then finally it led him to his death at the hands of the Roman government. But listen to what he says in Philippians 1, 21-24, as he's sitting in prison, remember, for clinging to Christ. He says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You've heard that one, right? If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I don't know which one I want more. That's what he's saying. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. How many of us in this room have that kind of feeling towards life? That that life is great, but man, I wish I could die soon so I could be with our Savior. Man. He says, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul is saying that for him to live is to live and breathe Jesus Christ. It is to follow him wherever he may lead. To have a broken heart for whomever Christ's heart breaks for. To obey him in, in whatever season to obey him that even if it might mean that his current circumstances turn dire and even if that leads to death so what all that means is that he gets to be with his savior all that much more quickly and in fact that actually even gives him boldness he even says that he is torn between the two right we just read that because he desires so desperately to depart and be with Christ which is much better than anything else that we can experience here on this life. And this makes following Christ, even unto death, something that is sweet for Paul. Something that is sweet for him. He views death as a a sweet release, you could say. But that's because, and only because, not because he he sees the darkness of this world, not just because he's upset at the the Roman government or, or anything like that. That's not the reason. The reason is because he is clinging on to Christ and he loves him with a desperate covenantal love like that of Ruth's love for Naomi. And what a beautiful picture Ruth is of how we should love one another, but even more so how we should love Christ. And let us pray for that kind of love. And Naomi eventually saw the determination in Ruth and she relents of her insisting that she go back with her sister Orpah. And in verse 19, the pair journeyed on their way to Bethlehem. And we read in verse 19 that though it had been at least a decade, the people actually recognized Naomi, but they they still couldn't really believe that it was the woman who left 10 years ago standing before them. So they, they kind of recognized her, but they were still kind of blown away that this was Naomi. And I don't think this was simply because Naomi was, was just 10 more years older than when she first left. I don't think that she, they were surprised that she aged, but I believe it was because of the state in which she returned. 
the state in which she returned. She left Bethlehem with a husband and two sons, right? And while she left her home because of the tragedy of a famine, she was, she was still full in one sense, right? That's what the passage says. She was still, she left full in that sense. She was leaving with her family intact. And so when the women of Bethlehem said in verse 19, is this Naomi? Is this woman that we're looking at actually Naomi? I think it was because they could hardly recognize her from all of the trauma she'd experienced, right? She was coming back a, a widow. She was coming back absent of her two sons. And though she had come back with Ruth, she was a broken woman. This was not the Naomi they knew when she left. And so she says to the women who had gathered around her in Bethlehem, starting in verse 20, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me that. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? The name Naomi actually means pleasant. Did you know that? It means pleasant. And this may very well have been how Naomi was when she left Bethlehem. She may have been a, a nice and pleasant woman to be around, joyful even. But now, after the tragedy that she had experienced, she had been convinced that the Lord has turned against her, that the blessings and the goodness and the love of the Almighty have been removed from her, and now He is purposefully acting against her, bringing upon her calamity after calamity after calamity. And she says that God has dealt very bitterly with her. And that word very actually means with enforceful abundance. He has enforceful abundance dealt bitterly with me. And so not only has her outward appearance changed in the 10 years that she was gone, but her very countenance, her, her very personality has changed. And so she says that it no longer makes sense for you to call me Naomi, to call me pleasant, but now you should call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. Bitter. Now I want to say this with a lot of sensitivity because I know that there are many within this room who have gone through or possibly are even going through now hardships in your life. And I by no means want to make light of those things at all. And so I pray that you hear me with grace when I say this. I believe one of the lessons that we see here with Naomi is that we as human beings often hyper-exaggerate the miseries that we find ourselves in. We often hyper-exaggerate the miseries we find ourselves in. And what I mean by that is not that the miseries and hardships that we find ourselves in are, are not hard and are not painful, because they are. We all know that to, to one degree or another. They are hard and they are, they are difficult to get through. But what I mean is that when we experience the darkness of this broken world, we can often exaggerate the hopelessness of our states and we can be blinded to the rays of hope that God shines into that darkness. That's what I mean by that. We exaggerate the hopelessness. And often what can cause us to exaggerate the hopelessness of our situation and what can blind us to the blessings of God in those times 
is bitterness. Bitterness. And Naomi is the, the perfect case study of this. Now, I don't believe anyone in this room would argue that Naomi did not experience tragedy that would rock anyone to their core, right? That would shake anyone's faith. And as we see, what she experienced embitters her. And friends, bitterness is a dangerous, dangerous poison to the soul. It blinds us to any and all goodness of God that He is desiring to shine into our lives. And Naomi, she couldn't see through the fog of her bitterness to the rays of blessings that God was extending to her. The blessing of the Lord visiting her hometown of Bethlehem and and blessing them with food. Opening up the opportunity for Naomi to return to her homeland, to her people. She was blinded to that. She was blinded to the blessing that her kinsmen, the, the covenant community of God, had repented and turned back to Him. And so he relented with the famine. What a blessing that is. The blessing that Ruth, who had every single reason to return home with her sister, chose to cling to Naomi. The blessing that these two women, who were in this time and place extremely vulnerable, made it back safely from Moab to Bethlehem. And the blessing that it was harvest season when they returned. And ultimately, the blessing that she could have hope in returning to her people, joining them in repentance and faith, and having a restored relationship with God Himself. But in her bitterness, she was blinded to all of it. She couldn't see any of that. But friends, the inability to see the rays of blessing God was shining into her life was actually actually not the worst symptom of her bitterness. That wasn't the worst part of it. The most dangerous symptom of Naomi's bitterness was that it gave her a distorted view of God's character. Let me say that one more time. The most dangerous symptom of Naomi's bitterness was that it gave her a distorted view of God's character. Naomi, though she believed that God could still bless others, had a warped view of the character of God and how He related to her specifically. This is the ultimate consequence of bitterness, warping our understanding, warping our view of God and His character. Now, friends, bitterness can take root in a heart in a few different ways. And one is simply unforgiveness, right? That one kind of seems obvious. An unforgiving heart is one that keeps a record of wrongdoings against it and refuses to forgive, right? And that's the antithesis of Christ, right? who had every reason to keep a long list of wrongdoings against us, and yet He forgave us everything. But bitterness can also come from, like Naomi, a compounding sequence of difficult events that cause one to see all of life as working against them. That can be another thing that causes bitterness. A compounding sequence of difficult events that happen in your life that makes you think everything is against you. But both of these can actually overlap a bit. In the case of Naomi, a a consistent sequence of difficult events caused her to keep a record of wrongdoings that God was committing against her, right? But the difference is that God never needs forgiveness. 
God never needs forgiveness. He does not sin against anyone. And all of the hardships that occurred to Naomi that resulted from either her sin or living in a fallen world, or as with most cases, a combination of the two, are always, always ordained by God in such a way to work for the good of His beloved people. Always. I mean, that's, that's, that's clear from Romans 8, right? Read Romans 8 and you will see that clearly. And this was also, friends, the conclusion of Joseph, right? We'll stick with the Old Testament. That was the conclusion of Joseph. If anyone had a reason to become embittered because of the hardships in life, it was Joseph. Betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of sexual abuse, and, and thrown into prison. But friends, a bitterness was never a part of Joseph's story. Why? Why? Because even in the literal and figurative pits of despair that he was thrown into, the true and everlasting character of God remained in focus for Joseph. Near the end of his story, after the Lord brought him out of the seemingly unending sequence of horrible events, And after he was elevated to the second highest position in in all of Egypt, he says this to his brothers who had done him so much harm. He says this, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Through the suffering of Joseph, through the evil actions of his brothers, God was ordaining not only the pathway for the protection of the Jewish people from the famine that was going to be striking that area, and he wasn't just orchestrating the events to bring about the entire narrative of Moses, and then, and then uh, King Saul, and then David, and so on and so on, all the way to the coming of Jesus to take place. He wasn't only orchestrating all of that in the story of Joseph, But in His grace, God knew that the life and testimony of Joseph would be used to speak to and teach us, you and I, about the goodness and unchanging character of God. How amazing is that? There's so much to it. But this is where Naomi struggled, right? Right here is where Naomi struggled. Because rather than being like Joseph, who knew the Lord was working a good even in his impossible circumstances, she allowed the bitterness to distort her vision of God. And she began to see and think of herself as a victim of God's cruelty. And how easy would it have been for that to be Joseph? Friends, she interpreted, and and listen to this, because I think we all do this from time to time, but she interpreted the character of God in light of her circumstances rather than interpreting her circumstances in light of the character of God. Did you catch that? How often do we do that? Let me read that one more time. She interpreted the character of God in light of her circumstances instead of interpreting her circumstances in light of the character of God. That was the difference between Naomi at this point in the story and Joseph. Joseph interpreted everything that happened to him in his life by the radiance of God's sovereignty and goodness. And, friends, as you you notice as you're reading through it, he didn't try to figure everything out. 
He didn't try to figure out why exactly God was doing this or that in every single circumstance, but he simply had faith in Him, knowing He had a good purpose for it all. And so friends, what protects you from bitterness that this fallen world attempts to sow into your heart is keeping a proper view of who God is and interpreting your circumstances in light of His unchanging goodness and love for those in Christ. It is having a profound vision of the full measure of grace that you have received from being united with Christ in faith and the hope that we have in Him despite the situations that you might find yourself in now. Sister in Christ and author Kay Arthur says this. She says, in any trial, in any bitter situation, you are not alone. You are not helpless. You are not a victim. You have a tree, a cross, shown to you by the sovereign God of Calvary. Whatever trial or temptation, it is not more than you can bear. It is bearable. It can be handled. You can know as Joseph knew, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So friends, I, I want you, as, as you come into various difficult seasons in life, to ask yourself, what is He working through me or in me in this tragedy? What might be the redemptive chain of events that He is ordaining through my current sufferings? Who are the people that God has lined up for me to minister to who need the same kind of comfort that I need now? Do I, do I feel myself becoming like Naomi and see my miseries as a result of God's cruelty? Or am I becoming like Joseph who leans on and trusts in the goodness and sovereignty of God? One, one creates bitterness. One creates joy. Just remember, bitterness says that there's no reason for your suffering. And but Jesus says that He is working a good in you and for you in your suffering. Bitterness says that there is no hope in your suffering. But Jesus says that we have a hope grander than we can even imagine that makes even the, the worst miseries that we experience in this lifetime not even worth comparing. Bitterness says that God is against you. But Jesus, who is the truth, remember, says that He is and ever will be for you. The Apostle Paul knew well that bitterness was a poison that eats away at the spiritual life of a believer. Which is why in Ephesians 4.31 he says that we must put it off. We must take it off like a, like a filthy garment. But listen to this verse because, friends, bitterness almost never lives alone. He says that in Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with malice. Friends, these are the nasty cohorts that come along with the bitter heart. All of these things will, will leak out of you onto others if bitterness has taken up residence within you. And so friends, we should seek to follow the command of Paul, to follow the command of God, and put it away like a dirty garment that it is. And let us seek out God to help us in our times of need. 
Not simply to deliver us from our trials, but to help us keep a proper view of Him. To help us actually believe in our hearts that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who belong to Him and love Him. So that we can respond to our trials with joy instead of bitterness. And so that we won't be blind and ungrateful for the innumerable blessings that He daily pours out on us. Our passage then ends in verse 22 by saying, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Friends, this sets the stage for next week, so please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, I just, I, I personally come before you absolutely humbled by your word and the lessons that we learn from it. And God, sometimes the most difficult part <clears throat> can be learning these lessons and then forgetting them as soon as we leave. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit just emblazons these truths that we learned this morning onto our hearts, Lord. God, that we don't interpret your character by the difficulties that we experience in this life, Lord. But rather, we, we can come to those moments, those, those crossroads in our, in our walk with you, Lord, where there's, there's all of these, these painful things going on around us, and we choose the road that leads to trust, that leads to faith in you. God, help us lean into your goodness. Help us actually believe these truths that are in Scripture, Lord, that you are working in us a good through these things. But also help us believe that there is a day coming where those pains and those sufferings, like that of Naomi, Lord, there will be a day where, God, all those things will be removed. God, and every single tear from our eyes will be wiped away by your very hand. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.